Historically, customer-facing teams treasured every moment they could get with their engineering counterparts. Because those moments were rare, engineers were focused on building the core product and any other initiative could be considered a distraction. Support teams in particular were often frustrated because they felt that engineering wasn't spending enough time fixing bugs, gathering customer feedback, and giving visibility into product changes. Getting engineering's help in building internal tools was so far from the realm of possibility that it wasn't even on the agenda. But today, engineering teams are spending more time supporting support teams, and there is a strong movement behind this. In this post, Simon Rohrbach, the CEO and co-founder at Plain, explains the drivers of this movement and what best-in-class collaboration between support and engineering looks like. We discussed why are engineers now more open to helping their colleagues in support? How can support teams motivate engineering teams to prioritize their projects? And how can CEOs encourage collaboration between the two functions? You can listen to the podcast or else read the lightly edited transcript of the conversation. Let's dive in. Simon, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for joining. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure. We are here today to talk about support teams and engineering teams, how they can work more effectively together. I know there are folks of all disciplines who read this newsletter, listen to the podcast. I think given my own focus on customer success historically, while it gains by imagine there are a lot of support leaders who will be reading this especially. And probably a lot of them are very curious to know how they can leverage their engineering teams more effectively to get great tooling for their team. And so I know you have a lot of perspectives on that interesting insights to share. I'm excited to dive in. Totally. Let's do it. All right. So I want to talk about the customer support world more broadly to start. From my perspective, I'm sure you'll have your own way of framing this, but in the support tooling world, there's been a lot of automation over the past decade. There have been multiple generations of support SaaS products, perhaps starting with Zendesk. And more recently, there were chatbots and agent assistant tools. You know, How would you describe the phases of support tooling over time? And then, you know, what pain points do you think have already been solved and what pain points do you think are still unsolved? So I think broadly speaking, the way I think about the space, right, is that it's kind of started two, three decades ago, really with kind of everything becoming obviously a lot more digital and a lot more like technology driven and everything moving online, e-commerce, especially moving online uh, very, very quickly and still massively growing. And I think for a while you had customer support still kind of powered by these very kind of traditional expensive systems that you typically hired consultancies to help you implement. And that would be very, very expensive, very slow and often kind of archaic process, right? And, and sort of the, the speed of iteration would often kind of be measured in quarters or, or years, right? With like new releases and new implementations and, and things like that. And then obviously, as you said, you would sort of have like sort of disaster generation of, of, of products where everything can move to the clouds. And now you have this kind of like whole new wave of companies also kind of partially in the SaaS space, but also trying to tackle sort of problems that previously would have sort of been considered on the periphery, right? Right. Automation, productivity of advisors in that space, et cetera. And I think sort of the, the way I think about sort of the problems that like still exist in the space and, and the problems that have been solved, I think is that at this point, I'd say comms communications is actually fairly well understood and fairly well solved, right? You have amazing communications infrastructure in the space, right? There's companies like, for example, Twilio, who do a really great job at letting you do phone calls, for example, or like handling, you know, SMS messages for you and things like that. 
chat as well is at this point very, very well established as a channel, as is email, obviously, that's kind of where a lot of it started. So I think that is, for me, is very safe to kind of call like a largely solved problem. Obviously, there's always kind of more to be done and, and a lot more to kind of push, but I think that's in a fairly good place. And I think people kind of know how to leverage that. I think the problem that people are still trying to figure out how to solve, and I think that if you do a survey of like most customer service teams, if you look at any study that gets done on space, what you'll see is that that problem still kind of features in like the top one or two problems of every customer service team everywhere. It's context and data. It's always around, I need to know customers contacting me. Who are they, firstly? Like, how do I know that as customers who they say they are? Who are they in my systems, right? They might be using a different email to get in touch with you from like the email that you have here in systems. Uh, who, what did they do right before getting in touch with us? Like, what did they do in our products? What led them to make this query with us? Who did they talk to before? What was the interaction like at that point? What problem did we help them with? Who helped them with that problem, right? Like, all this kind of context on what the customer's done, who they are, and how we might now be able to best help them. I think is still incredibly difficult to solve. I think largely because as everything's moved online, companies have actually become more complex technologically rather than less complex. And data has gone to more places rather than fewer places. So actually pulling together all that data into one place and and when someone's calling you up or when someone emails you, giving you this kind of single view where you can look at, hey, like what's happened with this customer? Who have to talk to before? What happened immediately before they got in touch with us? Actually remains very, very hard as a problem to solve. And how did you become interested in solving that problem and related ones? I think for me, it's always been, so I'm a background, by background, I'm a designer. And my co-founder, Matt, is a designer turned engineer. And we met at, uh, at Deliveroo, uh, where I joined one of, as, as one of the very early employees when the company was around 10 people, as I saw it grow to around 2000 by the time that I left. Uh, and we worked together, uh, at that point and sort of pondered over kind of like a shared obsession and love for internal tooling and almost like you could call it like operational effectiveness. Because I think one of the things that was really fascinating to us is an area where I think design and engineering is often underapplied is on the supply side of a company, not on the demand side, it's not on demand generation, because I think that's the thing that's very visible. A lot of people want to work on that. A lot of people want to work on the publicly facing product or the customer facing app or the website, all these sort of things. It's a very well understood thing. Whereas the thing that's actually a lot less visible is the internal side of a company, what goes on behind the scenes, like how do people get work done? And we sort of felt like you know, if you think about it, if you're able to make something that like typically takes five clicks and you're able to turn that into one click, you've actually created a massive lever for the company. And it actually doesn't take very much. It takes a bit of like careful design thinking. It takes a bit of engineering. Most of all, it takes a culture around that sort of stuff to like really make sure it happens. But we really felt like this is such an interesting area, so under leveraged and so underexposed and, and so many so many companies often kind of treat it as the last thing that they do. And as a result, as they grow, it's become less and less effective because sure, like having one person do a thing, a process that takes like five clicks and it could be one click and set, that's fine. Having 10 people do it that way, that's fine. Having a hundred people do it that way, that's no longer fine. Uh, having 500 people do it away, definitely not fine at all. And that starts to really impact your bottom line. So really felt like it was one of these areas where design can have a massive impact on your effectiveness as a company. And that's also kind of what we saw, how big this problem of actually getting context, as I mentioned earlier, was. And 
that's also when we realized that, again, that it's very core, it's designed in the engineering problem because it basically means that your systems, your own systems that you have internally, that you maintain, that you build, have to speak with your customer service system, right? Like where you help people. These two things have to like talk to one another. And so it always comes down to this kind of this engineering innovation kind of being that kind of that, that point uh, where these two kind of these two worlds meet. And it's very, very hard to kind of see that well today. So that's kind of, that's what led us to kind of go, hey, actually, there's something we can do here. There's, some, there's a lot of fun to be had here. It's a really interesting problem. That and I'm Swiss. So I'm kind of like efficiency is kind of in my DNA. So probably helped as well. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Perfect. Now, I know that there's a certain philosophy that you bring to solving this problem, which is focused on how engineering and support should work together. I think you have some theses about that collaboration and how it should evolve over time. You know, from my perspective, I know a lot of support teams historically have seen themselves as customers of engineering teams and often are frustratingly begging for help. <laughs> I think actually over time that engineering teams have really stepped up. So it's it's been interesting seeing that evolve. But I think probably most people believe that the collaboration's not quite there yet. I'd love to hear your perspective on what it should look like, how it should evolve. Yeah, I think broadly speaking... What's kind of led me to like really deeply believe in that and what led us to kind of build a company around it, I think is, has just been sort of seeing things that previously were considered on the edges of engineering, having those become like core areas of value creation, right? So if you think back like 10, 20 years, typically sort of most, the most basic tasks today, like running a server, deploying a website, building a website, all these sort of things would consume a lot of time and a lot of attention. You have to like work a lot of stuff out and, and do it all, all over again. And, and what's happened over the last decade or so is this: all this infrastructure has become so much more advanced and all these things actually now are very, very simple um, up until a certain scale. So what's happened is you've had this kind of these massive levers created, which basically means that like engineering teams now actually, they're moving to areas that previously were just not considered core and can make those core areas that they can reinvest in where they can create a lot of value where that infrastructure doesn't exist yet. So I think that's kind of what's causing this kind of shift on, on, on the engineering side because it's increasingly kind of becoming like a, an area that you can work on because some other problems have already been solved. And I think at the same time, companies start to see it a lot more now as a brand level differentiator where they're really like invest in it very, very deeply from both the brand level, product level, but also in operations, uh, also on the operational side. And I think what's kind of the way I think these kind of these two worlds, these traditionally very separate worlds, I think can work well together is basically by, by making sure firstly that they have a shared view of what really, really matters to the company overall. I think oftentimes, right, like as you said, what tends to happen is that the operational side of the business can sort of go, I really need help from engineering and they struggle to get it. And engineering goes like, well, this is really hard to work on. There's not a lot of infrastructure here. The tooling is really poor. Um, it's just very low leverage for us to actually spend time on this. And as a result, I think what tends to happen is tend to have to almost this, this sort of shadow IT um, world emerge on the operational side of the business, where they basically left their own devices and, and they end up doing a lot of hacks and a lot of safer integrations and things like that until it just doesn't scale anymore. And at that point, that's typically kind of when those two sides meet and they start to have to find a way to work together, but they do it under a lot of pressure because at that point they have to. The company scaling and they have to kind of like find a way of creating some leverage for organizations so that headcount on the operational side doesn't grow linearly as the company grows. So I think that tends to be kind of a key inflection point, I think, when that kind of partnership starts to kind of emerge. 
do you think that there's a certain percentage of engineering hours that should be dedicated to supporting support teams? Uh, I don't necessarily see it as a certain percentage of engineering hours. I think I see it more as a, a culture, which is that, you know, oftentimes I think if you look at how a company communicates internally, the sort of things that get celebrated, especially I think on the product and engineering side, is stuff that's very, very visible. There's almost this kind of availability bias where people look at it and they go, oh, we've shipped this thing on the app and it's live on the app store today. And it's super exciting. We can tell all our friends about it. Whereas sure, like, you know, that's important. That stuff really matters. The sort of things that um, don't get as much exposure and don't get celebrated as much is stuff like this person shipped a thing that saved their colleagues in operations several hours a day. And I think for me, it's really about celebrating those things more, pulling those things more out in the open and making those examples of having real impact on the organization because this sort of stuff compounds in the way that many of the things actually do not. So I think I'd see it less as the percentage of hours or something like that, but much more around having shared alignment on this stuff is important and here's how we measure it, right? Like actually having that kind of feedback loop of this saves us this many hours, this saves us that many hours. And I think the only way to do that, I think, again, is by kind of having people kind of work together um, and having engineering spend time with customer service and vice versa. So would you consider you and your company to be a part of the internal tooling movement? Oh, for sure. I think internal tooling, I think, has this kind of this, this moment right now, right, where so many people are, are like talking about it, which I think is fantastic. There's so many sort of what you could almost call consumer grade internal tooling companies emerging where they really put design at the very, very center of, of how they work and, and what they do and how they, look, how they look at the world. And there's so many more tools emerging that make it easier for engineers to write great tools with just less code and less hassle. So I think all of that stuff is, is fantastic. And we definitely kind of see ourselves as, as part of that. Uh, because I think, again, we believe in the same things, right? We believe in like making this a, a more, more of an engineering domain, um, firstly. And second, uh, also giving tooling to advisors and people working customer service that just feels more designed and that just feels more like they treat as a workflow problem rather than as a data input problem, which I think a lot of existing tools kind of do, right? Like really treating for workflows and making you fast and, and building something that like feels like it's there to help you rather than to like hold you back in the future law of policies, really making that the core thing. What do you think are the deficiencies in the category of internal tools that have existed for a few years now for support teams? I think typically what you see in the internal tooling side at least in sort of a lot of like the tools that have emerged recently, right? Is they kind of, they take very, very separate use cases typically and make those easier to build. So for example, if you want to build a tool to like make a certain process that you might have on the operation side easier, they kind of let you do that and wire something together yourself and they make that fairly easy. The problem is customer service, I think in particular, tends to be a very end-to-end -end problem. It's, it's literally, it starts the moment someone calls you up and need to like figure out who they are and where they are, who they say they are. And then sort of move through the various steps with them, right? Of establishing what the problem is, figuring out which tool to use for that, finding the right data for it, et cetera. So it really, I think, has to be looked at as a holistic problem. And I think that's where sort of plugins and things that you can insert and things you can add on top of the platform that you already have will get you some way, but they'll only kind of get you so far because they never address sort of the underlying sort of disconnect that often happens between, again, your own systems 
and your customer service tool they're using. Diving in a bit more into these best practices, I'm wondering, are there certain ways in which you think support teams and engineering teams should interact? For example, are there certain meetings they should have on the calendar, certain Slack channels, certain other types of regular touch points? Yeah, totally. I'd say there's two or three things that really matter that like I've seen work really, really well. I think the first thing, it sounds very simple and very obvious, but it's alignment on the metrics, right? There's a lot of metrics every customer support team will track. There's also a lot of metrics any kind of product team or engineering team that's working on retention or working on company effectiveness or whatever you might call it will track. And I think it's very, very important that those are the same. Uh, if you're fundamentally trying to help your products and customer service, right? Like to make sure that there's deep alignment on what that should be and what really moves the needle. Because I think otherwise you have situations where an engineering team might work on something and they might chip something and go like, that was really successful. We made a massive improvement. And their counterpart in operations might show up and go like, actually, that doesn't solve a problem at all. Um, and this is not the top problem that I need to solve. So I think the only way to avoid that is to make sure that like the very, very top you have sort of upstream, you have that alignment on what really moves the need on what's really important, because otherwise you have lots of downstream problems, um, like the ones I just mentioned. So I think that's the first thing, alignment on what matters. I think the second thing is sort of what I would call uh, local autonomy. Uh, I think it's one thing for a VP of engineering and, and the VP of operations or VP of customer service to agree on what matters. It, it's a different thing uh, to go into the tool and look at how many clicks does a customer service advisor has to go through to do a, a repetitive process and actually fixing that. And I think the most powerful thing I've seen there is having an engineer or designer sit next to someone in customer service and go like, show me what you do and like, let me take a few calls myself and sort of building that empathy also at that level. Because what you'll find, what will happen is the moment someone on the product side has gone through it themselves and they've seen the pain firsthand. It becomes, I think, a lot easier for them to go like, well, obviously the solution is very, very simple. We can just fix it very quickly. It will take me half an hour. But I think oftentimes the information doesn't get from A to B. And I think, again, the kind of the way they can create that urgency and make that a lot easier to do, I think, is to like make sure that pairing happens uh, on that kind of level. And I think then the third thing is, is around data gathering. Um, I think that's where customer service and operations thing can be such absolute gold mines, uh, for their colleagues in product because Oftentimes, they're the ones that hear about what's going wrong. Like, what does the product not do, right? Like, typically, when the product doesn't do something, it tends to be customer service that hears about it first. And I think sort of having that feedback loop, again, as part of having people kind of literally on an engineer and service advisor level collaborate and pair up and solve problems together, is that you also kind of get that feedback back on what do people call in about? What did they complain about? Like, what issues did they have? Uh, and I think it's... That's where it's sort of sometimes that false economy I think that companies have around you spend all this time and love on your core product and really polishing every single pixel of it. But then when people have a bad experience with the product, if you're not investing in the tooling that like people then encounter when they contact customer service, they'll end up having even worse experience. And that's actually when it matters the most. That's when you can really retain someone that's where you can really go above and beyond to make sure that their bad experience is turning into a really positive one. But oftentimes companies don't see it that way. And I think that's, again, we're sort of having that kind of that pairing, I think is, is really, really important. I've seen a few companies adopt, I guess you could call them extreme, maybe provocative measures to ensure that 
engineering teams develop that kind of empathy for support. One is that in addition to having engineers shadow support people, they actually have new engineers join the support team for the first few weeks, even couple of months that they're on the job. I've also seen, particularly in earlier stage companies, I've sometimes seen support teams report into the product and engineering work. What do you think about those measures? Would you recommend them for everyone? Under what circumstances do you think they would make sense? Totally. I think one of the best examples that I've seen of that kind of pairing is people engineering engineering folks, product folks, designers, joining a company and spending the first couple of weeks, uh, as you say, helping customers. Firstly, because it is the ultimate truth, right? It's the source of truth of like, what's actually happening? Like how well is a product actually doing? Are people happy with it? Are not happy with it, et cetera. So I think there's no better way of onboarding into company than to do that. It can be intimidating, it can be a bit scary. There can be a bit of organizational resistance. But I think even if you just like build up to that with like small wins, like pairing people up and like, even like on a Friday afternoon or something like that and doing it very informally, even just that can then lead you to that place where you can do something like that and say for the first couple of weeks, let's have everyone in product, everyone in engineering, join customer service and help customers. I think that can be one of the best things. Um, another really effective thing that I've seen is uh, to kind of make it something where it becomes almost like a social activity for the company. So like every other Friday or once a month or something like that, you have some kind of ritual where you say, uh, on Fridays, we all solve a couple of tickets together, for example, or we all jump into this together and everyone helps out across the whole company. Uh, I think when I was at Deliveroo, like one of the best things that I saw really moved the needle in terms of uh, sort of company-wide empathy for what we were doing uh, was people going out on bikes themselves during Friday lunchtimes uh, and, and delivering orders. It was one of the best things that I think we're able to kind of do just for company culture. And for making sure everyone had a deep understanding of, you know, the things you might see eternally on slide decks and reports and analytics dashboards, like what they actually mean out there in, in sort of the very real and physical world. So I think these are the things I've seen being most effective. I think other stuff that I've seen uh, work really, really well is stuff like, for example, making the data that you collect in custom service and operations really easy to access and almost having it like a heartbeat to the organization. So like every morning, nine o'clock, the key metrics that you track, having those be on Slack or an email in your inboxes waiting, not a PDF, not a link you have to click, but literally right there in your inbox, easy for everyone to see. I think that's the core thing. So I think making that kind of the heartbeat and kind of the pulse of the company, I think can be very powerful. Great ideas. Do you have any other tips for companies that are looking to motivate their best engineers to work on solving problems for support teams? I think I'd go back to sort of what I said earlier, which I think is to celebrate it very visibly. Because I think no amount of kind of trying to prioritize it or trying to say this really matters, matches it coming up in a performance review, for example. You know, like It was awesome how you took the initiative on helping that team for example, or like publicly giving that recognition and saying this person went above and beyond to like help that team, help their colleagues in customer service, and as a result, saved them X, Y, Z hours, or helped them do this way more effectively, or helped improve CSAT, or whatever the thing is that you, you really care about tracking, but recognize it, make it a thing that like basically people can like celebrate and be proud of. Uh, I think if you don't do that, then nothing else really matters. Like it has to be a cultural thing that you embed at that kind of level 
Otherwise, it'll always feel a bit like sort of second class to working on externally facing stuff because that's what gets typically all the attention. So you really have to kind of think counterbalance. So I think that would be the key thing I'd say. Make a cultural expectation, the cultural key point. As our last topic, I would love to talk about company values, which is a difficult thing to design. I know you and your co-founder, when you started your company, spent a lot of time thinking about your values. Can you talk about how you approached the decision about which values to select, how to describe them, and, and why it was so important to you to dedicate time to this? Totally. And I think values are are an interesting and the thing very frequently sort of abuse thing in a lot of companies, right? I think oftentimes it kind of gets gets picked and then people sort of get hit over the head with it in like performance reviews or they can be very, very toxic. They can be misinterpreted very easily. And I think the worst is actually if they don't mean anything, if they're so generic that, you know, it's just like any kind of decent human being, you've done a good job, if you've done a good job hiring in your company, would obviously subscribe to those values. And that's kind of when they lose their meaning, their impact, right? So if you kind of go like, be honest, honesty being one of the key values, it's a bit like, well, if you've hired the right people, then like, hopefully they don't have to state that. It's one of those things where I think if you get it wrong, they just become a bit sort of like meaningless and it's just a bit sort of performative and it doesn't actually mean very much. And one of the things I'm really a firm believer in is that A, I think firstly, values should guide your decisions. If you get to decide between, and you often have this as a founder, you get to decide between A and B and they're both like maybe good or bad in different ways. And that can kind of make it hard to like trade things off against one another, right? And I think that's when actually having a set of values where you kind of go like, this feels directionally correct because this is a thing that we care about as a company and making this decision, choosing B over A helps move closer to that thing that we really care about. I think it often makes those decisions for me and actually makes those decisions very, very easy. So where I really wanted something, Matt and I talked about this early on, we were like, Let's make sure the first thing that we do is write down what those things should be because they will guide everything else that happens afterwards. It, it guides who we hire, it guides how we side things, how we build the product, it guides all these things. And I think, for example, a good example of one that we picked early on and it still exists today and that the whole team is also kind of really rallying around is, for example, our desire to stay small, which I think is, is not often heard in startup land, but really sad, like, we want to build an intentionally and proudly small team. And for me, that means is small actually for me is relative to like the size of like the market and the vision and the ambition that we have. But I really want to build a small company with an outsized impact. And the reason that matters to me is because I think it enforces good rigor. It enforces, it forces you to like really think through every single hire and go like, is this the right hire? Does this person bring what we need? And I think that's a value that we've come back to every single time we've had to make any decision about growing the team, even technology choices, actually. We, we've made a lot of our technology choices with that in mind of like, will it enable us to stay small, to keep a small team? Um, will it enable us to stay effective? That's one. Another one that we picked that has guided everything we've done is we want to build a business, more utopia. I think many, many companies oftentimes will, you know, ha have like a very, very noble ambition and, and like change the world, make a dent in the universe, etc. Oftentimes that gives you a bit of an excuse to look at the stuff that's actually happening in some of you right now. Uh, and the reality is like, we're unprofitable. We need to make money. Nothing else matters if we don't do that. If we don't exist, then like everything else is this for nothing. And, and so that should guide everything. It should guide absolutely everything. It's like, we need to be a business. We can't just be a company or a product. We need to be a business. And so everything that we decide, everything that we do should should lead towards that. Um, and it really, really has. Um, it really has changed how we thought about things, 
built the business, a lot of decisions we made day to day, um, and it's it's changed to be higher as well. So I think that is why sort of for me, this is why you pick values in day one because like they change how you build a company. Uh, so I, I'd highly recommend doing this before anything else. If you're thinking of starting a company, it's already been good for us. Well, Simon, I think we now have the subject of our next conversation, which we will have to publish on this subject, <laughs> all about company values. I'm sort of regretting having um, left this for the end. I mean, there's just to kind of chime in on a few reactions to what you're saying, because I think there was so much of what you said that was super powerful. I mean, I love the idea of focusing your values on the things that make you distinctive and that are not obvious because it should be taken for granted, for example, that people should be good people and respect each other and do the basic things that I think a lot of values tend to point to. And therefore, like the values tend to become meaningless. And often, as you said, they're kind of used as the tip of a spear in a political battle, which is never the intention of the founder when they're designing them. It's helpful, I think, to like focus the values on what makes you distinctive, because then it can actually help inform decision making in some of the most difficult times you have, which when you're going through difficult times, you'd like to be able to lean on the foundation of values that you set. And I think the ones that you mentioned in particular are very interesting. You know, the desire to remain small what a powerful statement, because I, I think what it points to is, you know, and you said this, you should try to be scalable from the beginning, you know, work smart, create automation, create the playbook, create repeatable processes. I think so often, especially in the market we've seen over the last couple of years, founders have celebrated when they've hired someone new or they celebrate when they effectively spend money. <laughs> and of course, you know, I, I think a lot of folks are regretting that, you know, now in this in this new kind of macro environment. But I think regardless of macro environment, that sort of focus on nimbleness will serve you well going forward. For sure. If I can sort of share one sort of like criteria I think that has served us well in terms of our values and picking them. And someone said to me ages ago where it's just one of these things that stuck with me and I think I'll take with me forever is this idea that your values should be something that other companies can credibly disagree with. So you should be able to point out another company that's really successful and doing really well that you admire and go, they will not have this value and still have your values and their values make total sense. Because then actually they make you new. And I think that's the key thing for values. Super powerful. Well, let's publish more on that subject in the future. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat, Simon. Thank you so much. Thank you.